Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Today, instead of having someone to chat to in front of an audience, we actually went to the British Library. We went there with Polly Russell and Rosie Sykes, and we sat reading some of the oldest manuscripts about cookery books in, in the library. Yeah, the, the oldest cookery book in the English language, which is called Form of Curry. And uh, we set about doing an evening of food cooked from that book. Rosie Sykes adapted the recipes from Form of Curry. Uh, and from a couple of other old cookbooks. We were kind of there doing prep and cleaning and running around mostly. It was Rosie and Polly's show. But uh, we managed to record them and we hope you'll enjoy it. For those of you who don't know, Polly Russell is a food historian. She's one of the smartest, funniest people uh, we've met. She's a joy and she talks about these books and about the food with such passion. Have a listen to kind of a little lecture about it, but it's really fascinating. Hello and welcome to this evening's event, History Cooked, in collaboration with Street Child United as part of the Cambridge Food Festival. My name is Polly Russell uh, and some of you may know that I write a column for the Financial Times called History Cook. This History Cooked evening is being done in collaboration with Rosie Sykes, a wonderful chef and author of Sunday Night Suppers. Um, Rosie and I have been friends for more years than I care to remember. And over those years, we've been talking about food and cooking food and sharing a love of food history. And it occurred to us last year that we really ought to get on with bringing those things together to create an uh, informal supper club, which used books or menus or um, ideas of food from the past uh, in order to provide an opportunity to think about food as a lens to thinking about history. And so this evening's uh, event of History Cook is the second one that we've run and we're so thrilled to be doing it in collaboration with Honey & Co with Itamar and Sarat. It seems fitting that this evening's menu is based on a manuscript called The Form of Curry because this is our first history cooked and The Form of Curry is the first cookery manuscript written in the English language. It's also probably the most important cookery manuscript as well. So plenty of firsts there. And it's also really fitting that we're working and collaborating with Itamar and Sarat because they are two of the most exciting voices in food. And I think since they opened their shop in Warren Street and have been writing about cookery and food and sharing with British people their style of cooking, they have really opened out how we understand Middle Eastern food um, and food from that region. And I hope what will become apparent is that this document that we're basing this evening on, the form of curry, which dates back to 1390, 700 years, has so many echoes and links with the food that Itamar and Sarit have championed and made so popular. So the way this came about was that Itamar, Rosie, uh, Sarit and I met at the British Library and we poured over uh, a whole series of books and manuscripts and, and in the end determined a menu based on this one manuscript, The Form of Curry. So I think there are a couple of things to say about The Form of Curry. The first is the title. Uh, curry does not refer to curry. So anyone here who's under the 
uh, misapprehension, they're going to have curry, is going to be disappointed. Curry is actually spelled C-U-R-Y, and it ref refers to um, cooking. So form of curry means the method to cook or the way of cooking. And the second thing I'd like you to do before we talk about the manuscript or its history is just for you to visualize it. It's stored in the British Library in our most secure vault. So you think like the Lindisfarne Gospels, the Magna Carta, that's, that's who it sits among. And it's, it's kept in a small rectangle blue uh, box, which is very sort of stiff and rather formal and, and hard to open. So it sort of forces you to slow down before you even start to even get to this manuscript. And the manuscript itself is quite extraordinary. It's 5.8 metres long. It's about 30 centimetres wide. And it's a vellum scroll, so calfskin scroll. So it unfolds in this incredible way. It takes up, you know, tables and tables. And despite the fact that it is 700 years old, it's incredibly clear. The ink on it is, in, is totally vibrant. It's black ink. There's the different sheaths of the vellum are sewed together with a blue thread, which is incredibly bright and vibrant still. The recipes are really readable, particularly as you move down the scroll, because the first half of the scroll has been, is the part of the scroll that's been the most looked at for obvious reasons. But as you move down, it gets more and more clear. There's something to be said, I think, about the form of this manuscript, the fact that it was, is this huge roll, and that suggests that it's not a recipe book or a record in the way that we would use a recipe book. I mean, first of all, most people that would have been working in the kitchens of Richard II, who was the king at the time, would have probably been illiterate you would not be able to use this as a recipe book. So this is much more a record. This is much more something that's, that's providing evidence of something. It's a, maybe an aid memoir, but really it's a bit like the pipe rolls in the Exchequer. This is something that is recording and detailing something about a, a very successful, very opulent monarch's um, court. This is what the oldest manuscript in the English language. And I think what you take away from it is that on the one hand, how sophisticated and complex the cooking was in the court at that time, but also how there are so many links with things that we, flavours and tastes and, and ways of cooking that we have today. So this is the first document to mention olive oil, the first one to mention mace and also um, cloves. And this is absolutely a document about a royal court. This is, this is not the food that ordinary people were eating. We have very scant evidence for for what people were eating before the 14th century. There are some sort of records of menus and of um, household uh, accounts going back to the 12th century. And from those, we can see that the food that's in the form of curry, the recipes that are in the form of curry, uh, were also being eaten perhaps back as far as the 12th century. So things like um, hens stewed in cumin, fish boiled in wine, we have, we've got recipes for those back to the 12th century. And so actually, this document, the form of curry, it doesn't just take us back 700 years, it really takes us back 1,000 years. So we're looking back into 1,000 years of history. So when you unroll the document, which you have to do very carefully under the BDI of a manuscripts curator, there's the first part of it is a listing of the recipes. There are 196 recipes in total, and they are listed out 
almost like a recipe book would be today. So in that sense, it, it is reminiscent of a cookery book. And then there's an introduction. And the introduction is penned by the chief master cook of Richard II. And it, and it says, I'll just read you some of it. It says, first, it teacheth a man for to make common potages and common meats for a household as they should be made, craftily and wholesomely. Afterwards, it teacheth for to make curious potages and meats and subtleties for all manners of states, both high and low, and the teaching of the form of making of potages and meats, both of flesh and of fish, both set here by number and by order. So this is a little table here showing will teach a man without tarrying to find what meat that him lust for to have. So this is, it's stating that this is a sort of practical handbook and a guide for for creating what they call sort of ordinary food but also feasts but actually yes there are real foods which is like soups and and sort of quite simple rice dishes but actually this is very much the food of the wealthiest people in society it's incredibly extravagant and that is because in the middle ages food is absolutely central to kings, nobles, aristocrats displaying their wealth and displaying their skills, their hospitality, their generosity. It is a form of of power, a display of power, and that really goes right up into the late 17th century. In a, in a way, it's sort of real conspicuous cons- consumption. This, this record is, in a sense, the sort of... It's like the oligarch's yacht of today. It, it is, it's evidence that Richard II is sophisticated, that he has a huge amount of money to spend. We know that his court was particularly lavish and opulent, that he used art, culture, uh, ritual as being very important to maintaining his status and his power, which was very, very precarious because he came to the throne when he was 10 years old. And it, the early part of his reign was marked by a whole series of attempts to um, overthrow him. Um, and he was very interested in um, establishing hierarchy and rituals and rules. In fact, he introduced the phrase, your highness. He apparently introduced the handkerchief as well as a sort of form of uh, showing your status and behaviour. Some hundred years later, talks about Richard II's court as routinely entertaining 10,000 people. Now, there may have been some exaggeration in that, but there was no doubt that he was a, a, a huge entertainer, that this was all about display. And that was very typical of the time. So we have records um, from 1465, so sort of 70 years later, of the Archbishop of York, George Neville. Uh, and he had a grocery list for one of his feasts, which featured 7,000 capons and 1,000 sheep. So this incredible sort of opulence and kind of scale of catering that was happening in the wealthiest households for particular occasions was pretty um, mind-blowing. So Richard II was known as the best and royalist vivandier. That's how he was described at the time. And in that context, these recipes record the extravagance of his court. So what about the recipes themselves? You might expect, I think, given how our tastes and diets have changed so radically within just 50 years so we've gone from a nation that I don't know eats you know spam and offal to one that eats sushi and vegetarian sausages now in 50 years you might imagine that the food of 700 years ago would be almost unrecognizable 
And there are dishes in the form of curry which are extraordinary and outlandish and sort of mystical. Things like a porpoise porridge, um, roast seal, seal with sauce, heron, you know, things which are completely, you know, would, are off the menu for certain now. But they are the exceptions. They're not the norm. Most of the food in this document from 700 years ago is in some way very recognisable. So let me just give you an example of some of the recipes in the first 20. There's uh, chicken in gravy, pig in sage sauce, ground and beans, so ground beans, and cabbages in potage, which is a, a vegetable cabbage soup. So, you know, meat and sauce, rices like pilafs, thick soups, meat pies, very recognisable in form and content. And so one of the other things that's interesting about this document is the degree to which it is, it is specifically English in its nature. In, in other words, in, to what degree is this particularly English food um, or would this be the same sort of food that would be eaten uh, in France, for example, at the same time or in Spain? And uh, there probably would have been many similarities because of the way in which flavours and tastes travelled at the time amongst the wealthy. But there is something specifically English about the variety of meats and fishes available because of, a, of, of this sort of island um, geography. So, you know, capons, pheasants, curlews, herons, partridges. I mean, basically, if it, if it wasn't a human and it moved, it was being eaten. So incredible amounts of different sorts of uh, fish and meats and birds. Um, but I think the thing about the document, which for me, apart from its kind of physical majesty that is the most extraordinary is the way in which it is a reminder of England's long connection with the rest of the world because embedded in that document in almost every single recipe are requirement for spices or for sugar and that tells us about this huge long cultural exchange uh, which started with the crusades and then carried on with a spice trail um, this incredibly complex journey that spices would have had to have taken at that time from the Middle East, you know, coming on like caravans of, um, you know, donkeys and camels and then across the sea, you know, traveling thousands and thousands of miles in order to get to England. So this incredibly complex um, links. And what that tells you then is that, first of all, the way in which the world was entwined the way in which the you know the ottoman empires and muslim empires were absolutely uh, forming the kind of culinary culture artistic culture or influencing that of europe and then um, england but it also you know that this document is really the document of the super wealthy because spices are entirely unnecessary. They are as useful to life as diamonds. They are the ultimate inconspicuous consumption. So the fact that they have um, in every recipe is a sign of total opulence. I mean, ordinary people would simply never have had the opportunity to see, taste, smell um, spices. The spices which are there in particular are pepper, ginger, cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, powder force and powdered douce, which is a, a strong powder and a gentle sweeter powder, which were very typical of a sort of blend, basically. Um, I suppose the curry powder of the day. And also, interestingly, saffron is very features very heavily. Um, and saffron at this time, by now, is being grown in Suffolk. 
and in Cambridge. And at the same time, you have recipes which require rice, almond milk. So these are also ingredients which are traveling at least from southern Spain. So traveling huge distances to get to England. And then there's one other ingredient that's, that's present in the document, but which would be something most people would never come across, and that's sugar. So a number of recipes call for sugar to sweeten and enhance dishes. Often you, they use sugar and salt at the same time, and there wasn't the distinction between sweet and savoury that we have now. And if I just give you a sense of how expensive or how... Um, how little sugar was used at the time. We have a record from 1399 of a woman called Dame Alice de Bine, who was a very wealthy aristocrat. And she had a household of 200 that she was regularly feeding. And her yearly purchase of sugar was 55 pounds of sugar. This is a very wealthy woman. That equates to half a teaspoon of sugar per person per week. So... In the wealthiest of households, that's, that's the amount of sugar there was. I mean, my, I don't, shamefully, my children would have that, you know, on a pancake times by four every Sunday, probably. So the fact that sugar's there is a real evidence of this document's uh, sort of record of wealth and money. What about the style of these recipes? How, what are they like? How do they compare to us? Well, they're nothing like ours in that they don't have um, timings, they don't have quantities, uh, none of the things that we expect now with recipes. But amazingly, those things actually came very late. Only in the 19th century did people start routinely writing down um, those things when, with recipes. But let me read out a recipe so that you can hear how they're written. This is the recipe for rice of flesh, which we're eating tonight. Uh, take rice and wash him clean and do him in an earthen pot with good broth and let him seep well afterward take almond milk and do per two and color it with saffron and salt and mess it forth so it's really more like an aid memoir it's almost like a kind of literary description of how you would make a dish and I think it assumes that the person reading it knows what they're doing there's no timings there's no quantities there's there's no descriptions um, so it requires and you know it requires you having a certain amount of knowledge ahead of actually coming into this uh, coming to this recipe so that describes the um, that explains how the recipes are written. What Rosie and Itamar and Sarit have done is taken six of these recipes for tonight and interpreted them uh, based loosely on uh, these kind of rather vague descriptions. Uh, and we're going to have uh, these six dishes now. We have separated them out into a savoury course and a sweet course, but at the time, there would have been much less distinction between those. You'd have eaten sort of heavier foods first and lighter foods, which they might have called dessert for a second course or a third course, but, but, a, but a lighter dish might have meant something like a, um, a fowl pie or uh, roast fowl rather than beef pie. So it, it, you'd still have savoury dishes right at the end, but we've made that separation. So I hope that you get the sense of this food as being very much still connected to the ways that we eat, the flavours that we love now, and it, uh, this kind of reminder of our, our connections with the rest of the world, that us being an island, but nevertheless, you know, always having been a global nation and um, get some sense of the magic of this incredible document.
What I find so exciting is that the recipes, so many of them work so well or that the flavour combinations work so well, but also how incredibly contemporary they seem and also what they tell you is how sophisticated the diet was for medieval period. I mean, I think we have this idea of them being sort of like almost like savages and kind of gnawing on bones. And I just don't think when you read this document and understand it, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, And I think that one dish, which in a way is really very, very simple, perhaps for me encapsulates that uh, best. And that is the um, recipe for salad, salat, which includes parsley, sage, green garlic, scallions, leek, spinach, borage, uh, primroses, violets, fennel, cress, rosemary, purslane, lavender and mint and is served with oil, vinegar and salt. I mean, that is just the most, for me, the most beautiful looking and the most mouth-watering, delicious salad, which would look beautiful on any table and would seem completely contemporary. And that tells me that people 700 years ago must have cared a great deal about food and what they ate and that food was incredibly important to them. I wanted to say something about the way in which a medieval banquet would have been staged and set up and the sort of form of eating. Uh, you may recall when I was reading out that, that introduction from the master cook who wrote the form of curry, he, he mentioned subtleties. And for those of you who don't know what a medieval subtlety was, a subtlety was a, a sort of entertainment often in... Uh, wax or sugar or pastry form it wasn't something edible it was um, something that was brought in between courses uh, often to kind of entertain or to distract um, often like allegorical forms uh, depictions from the bible they would have sort of like wax huge great big sort of wax depictions of castles or battles that had been won and fought we have this idea that I think that kind of from movies, from Hollywood movies, you know, there's this sort of idea of banquets of people sort of throwing their food on the floor and sort of banging the table and it all being incredibly uncouth and, you know, sort of disgusting and dirty. I, you just have to completely forget that. That is a total myth. Um, there are plenty of documents telling us in great detail how food should be served, the importance of etiquette following protocol. Um, And so we know that eating, particularly in wealthy households and particularly for uh, sort of high occasions, was something which was incredibly structured and formalised. And no wonder, in a sense, because these meals were... They were serving a number of purposes. They were, of course... As I've said, you know, they are showing the sort of opulence and status of the most important person there and of the household. Um, but also, of course, you know, this is a highly risky time in terms of food. You, you, have to be, you have to be preparing your food carefully and cleverly and cleanly in order that people aren't all keeling over with food poisoning. Um, there's all sorts of rituals, therefore, established in order to sort of protect and maintain both the status and the form and the safety of the people who are dining. So let me give you a sense of um, some of those and how this banquet would have unfolded. 
there would have been uh, tables laid out in a large hall and they would be organised in terms of status. So there would be a high table on which the most important people, guests and members of the household would sit. And then depending on your status, the, the further you would be away from um, that table. Uh, the tables would be covered with tablecloths, at least two and probably three tablecloths. And there's something about... Um, the both the luxury and the cleanliness of a tablecloth in terms of uh, removing you from the kind of earthiness and the kind of nature of a table as in you're literally removing yourself from the sort of wood of a table so it's a kind of civilizing effect of uh, the table cloth there would be ritual hand washing so behind the high table there would be a cupboard what would be called cupboard and there would also be another uh, sort of sideboard with uh, bowls of water and before anybody sat down people would wash their hands and clean them and that would be very important because this is uh, before people have forks people are using um, spoons and knives to eat uh, but they will also be using their hands to pick up more solid food or to tear pieces of meat or put meat in their mouth so having clean hands is very uh, very important um there would be, before people ate, in the wealthiest house, householders, ritual assays. And assays is the uh, tasting of food by lower orders to ensure that it's not poisoned. So uh, s salt, bread, uh, bread would be dipped into sauces, into dishes to make sure that there's, there's not dangerous. And that became a sort of ritual uh, m more than more than it was it was a ritual that was followed more than it was something that was actually stopping people from being uh, poisoned as it were and then what you would notice I think what we would notice if we walked into a medieval banqueting hall and we looked at the food is we I think we would be struck by the incredible color of the food of how important color was in terms of dishes so they used a lot of um, saffron and sandalwood they would use spinach to make things green so you had yellow red green lots of the dishes were uh, named after uh, you know named after color so something like blanc desire which became blancmange but blanc desire means uh, white uh, white dish from Syria, Syria. Um, so white dish, they need to have a yellow dish from Syria. So these kind of incredible colours, and particularly yellow. Yellow was uh, seen to be like an allusion to gold um, or the sun, and therefore close to God. So lots of the food would have been very beautifully coloured. So again, I think we might have an idea that the that a medieval banquet would be sort of great hunks of grey meat and sort of sloppy gruel-like like food none of it at all and then in terms of um, courses they would not have the courses that we would have today so starter mains puddings that that would not happen uh, dishes would be brought to the table in courses but the courses would be um, much more split between not split between salt and sweet and savory um, but it would be that you would eat the heaviest food at the first at the beginning and then lighter food towards the end so things like wafers and fritters and um, maybe fish or uh, fowl rather than the heavier foods at the beginning and there would probably be three courses three big courses with lots of dishes would be brought um, and you wouldn't get to eat everything unless you were on the high table. So if you're on the high table, you will get to uh, enjoy the 
heron or the porpoise or the kind of seal, the outlandish, the peacock, you will get to try that. But uh, people who are sort of further down the social scale, sitting at the tables to the side, will eat sort of increasingly less opulent food as you as you go along. So uh, it's really those things are really only for the sort of most honoured guests, the most prestigious people. Um, and all leftovers would be collected together uh, and would be given as alms to the poor after a banquet and a feast. So that will now bring us to our next course, which is a pudding course. And we'll be having a rhubarb moise, which is like a... In the form of curry, it's an apple moise, but we decided rhubarb was in season. And so we've swapped out the apple for rhubarb and uh, a moise. It's sort of, it's almost like a custard. Um, it's delicious. And then we're also having something called a sambocard, which is uh, in the form of curry, is an elderflower cheesecake, which just, to me, just couldn't sound any more modern uh, and delicious. Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode of the Honey and Co. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey and Co. or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. We would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at iTunes. Only five stars, please. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing. A special thanks to our own Louisa Cornford for her wonderful research. And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening.